Welcome to Farming in the Emergency Department. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Faney. I'm a pharmacist at the University of Iowa in the Emergency Department. And this will be a monthly episode of Hot Topics in Emergency Department Pharmaceuticals. So this month's topic is belly infections. So what we're going to go over this month is recommended treatment options in the emergency department for belly infections. So when you think of intra-abdominal infections, there's uh, different categories that they fall under. So the first one we're going to look at will be cholecystitis and cholangitis. We will also discuss diverticulitis. We will also go over spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. And we will look at intra-abdominal abscesses and just the plain uh, intra-abdominal infections. So when you think of intra-abdominal infections or belly infections, what are the typical pathogens? Well, it really depends on the site of infection. So you need to distinguish between community versus hospital acquired. And remember that most of these infections are polymicrobial and will require some sort of broad-spectrum antibiotic. Most commonly found pathogens in these infections are Enterobacteriaceae, which is a, a large class of gram-negative pathogens, which include E. coli, Klebsiella, Proteus, just to name a few, and anaerobes. So if you look here, this is organisms identified in three randomized controlled trials with roughly 1,200 patients. As you can see, E. coli was... Uh, identified in a high percentage of the cases, along with the Bacteroides species. Streptococcus was also the most commonly identified gram-positive organism. So we'll start off with cholecystitis and cholangitis. Cholecystitis is usually an inflammatory process but can be infectious. Cholangitis typically is involved with an infection. So if you're thinking of community-acquired, the most commonly associated pathogen is E. coli. This will kind of be the trend of the story with the intra-abdominal infections um, as a lump sum. Other pathogens associated, Klebsiella, Enterobacter, anaerobes and Enterococcus are also associated with these, but usually are not clinically relevant as far as an infection goes. In most cases, are polymicrobial, so remember that when treating these infections. So how to treat? What are the recommended treatments for these infections? Well, second or third generation cephalosporin are typically great options to start with. So second generation, you're thinking cefoxetin or cefotetin. Third generations are usually ceftriaxone or cefotaxine. Another good option would be the fluoroquinolones. Um, you could use ciprofloxacin, moxifloxacin, or levofloxacin. And if there is um, some worry about anaerobic infection, you can go ahead and add metronidazole, which has great coverage of bacteroides. So moving on to diverticulitis. So diverticulitis, you definitely think of polymicrobial infection. Again, you are covering the gram-negatives. Also, you need to cover anaerobes, especially bacteroides. The big difference between diverticulitis and cholecystitis and cholangitis is that the diverticulitis 
if it's a mild to moderate disease, can be treated on an outpatient basis. And if it is severe or the patient has complicated past medical history, they're going to be admitted for IV antibiotics. So how to treat? Well, it depends. So for the outpatient, we can send patient home with oral antibiotics. Um, some of the oral options would be Augmentin, or you can use a quinolone or Bactrim combined with metronidazole. The duration for treatment is typically around 7 to 10 days. For inpatient options, you're typically going to choose a third-generation cephalosporin or a quinolone and combine them with metronidazole. Another option is to do ertapenem as a single agent for the treatment of diverticulitis. For those patients who are defined as high risk, who have been inpatient, who have received uh, antibiotic therapy as an outpatient and have failed, or who have had exposures to antibiotics you know, within the last 90 days, uh, you would want to use something of more broad spectrum, such as Zosin, um, you could use a carbapenem. Those are the high-risk patients. Those are when you really um, break out the broad-spectrum antibiotics. Moving on to spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, again, the primary pathogens are gram-negative. Others of concern can be streptococcus or enterococcus. So typically, when to, do you suspect um, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis? Well, you suspect it in all patients who have ascites and clinical decompensation. So the first-line antibiotic of choice for spontaneous bacterial peritonitis is cefotaxin, and you usually start out with 2 grams. You can also use ceftriaxone, but the guidelines typically prefer cefotaxin. For your penicillin or cephalosporin allergic patients, uh, fluoroquinolone um, is an option, and you can also use ertapenem. Be careful with the fluoroquinolones because a lot of patients are receiving fluoroquinolones for SPP prophylaxis. So if they are taking a fluoroquinolone at the time, I would not use that as first-line treatment for somebody with diagnosed SPP. So the question with SPP is, should we add albumin? Well, there was a randomized controlled trial that included 126 patients, uh, 63 in the cefotaxime group and 63 in the cefotaxime plus albumin group. The primary endpoint of this study was mortality and development of renal impairment. So the good of this study was that the cefotaxime and albumin group fared good against the um, cefotaxime-only group decreased the incidence of renal failure significantly, and decreased the incidence of hospital and three-month mortality, and both of these were statistically significant. So what are some of the problems or the bad with this study? Well, it was a small study. It only included 126 patients. Um, it wasn't blinded, so there definitely could have been some bias introduced into the overseeing providers. And the dosing, uh, there's been there has not been any dosing studies, so we don't know if that was the appropriate dose to use or if a lower dose would have been just as successful. The ugly with this study is the costs. So 
A 70 kilo patient would receive roughly 105 grams of albumin. The approximate cost at our institution is roughly $2,700. So not a cheap uh, therapy for these patients. So who really should get albumin? Well, the group that fared the best were patients who already had evidence of renal dysfunction. They already had an elevated serum creatinine, an elevated BUN, or they also had an elevated bilirubin level of greater than 4. So moving on, we're going to talk just briefly here about intra-abdominal infections, um, just generalized, and intra-abdominal abscesses. Uh, the big thing to distinguish here is the, the community-acquired mild to moderate infections um, versus the hospital-acquired. So the mild to moderate infections, expected pathog pathogens, again, are the Enterobacteriaceae, Streptococcus, and the anaerobes. For the more severe infection, immunocompromised patient, or healthcare associated, you could expect the same pathogens as the mild to moderate infections, but you also want to be wary of resistant pathogens such as Pseudomonas, Acinterbacter, the ESBLs, MRSA, and Enterococcus. So the treatment options, we'll start here first with the mild to moderate infections. So there are a few approved single agents that can be used. So you could use cefoxetin, ertapenem, moxifloxacin, or tigacycline. Or you could do a combo therapy such as a uh, third-generation cephalosporin, ciprofloxacin, levofloxacin, and then add in metronidazole for your anaerobic coverage. For those more severe infections, the patients who are immunocompromised, or have a healthcare association, you are going to use a broader spectrum antibiotic, such as Zosin or Meropenem is approved at our institution. Other carbapenems are equally as efficacious. Or you could do a combo therapy of uh, fluoroquinolone plus metronidazole, cefepime or ceftazidine plus metronidazole. Um, if there is a risk of MRSA, the drug of choice per the guidelines is vancomycin. And if you are worried about enterococcus, uh, zosin will cover vancomycin and ampicillin. Um, if you run into some vancomycin-resistant enterococcus, that when, that's when it gets a little more tricky. Um, then you might have to add in like a linazolid for the treatment of that. So... Basically, the recommendations for today were taken out of the recent uh, Infectious Disease Society guidelines. Um, and one antibiotic was recommended in the 2003 guideline, but has been removed in the updated version. That antibiotic would be Unison or Ampicillin Sulbactam. So what's wrong with Unison? Why has it been removed from the guideline? Well, if you look here, and I've discussed um, frequently throughout this presentation, one of the primary pathogens in intra-abdominal infections is E. coli. If you look at our unison susceptibility at University of Iowa, it's only 62%. So you could end up with a lot of treatment failures. So due to the high rates of resistance, the guidelines say it should not be recommended for any intra-abdominal infection whatsoever. And there are some other antibiotic issues I want to discuss really quick here. Quinolone resistance, 
um, is on the rise. This is a nationwide uh, problem. E. coli susceptibility at our institution is less than 90%. So they state that you can still use a quinolone flagell combination, but these should be reserved for the mild to moderate infections, and you don't want to use these for the severe healthcare-associated infections um, due to treatment failures. Erdipenem is uh, carbapenem, and it's actually a wonderful drug because it's got a nice once-a-day dosing. We typically reserve it for the penicillin, cephalosporin, allergic patients. And the guidelines recommend against broad use of erdipenem because it could increase the appearance of carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriaceae, pseudomonas, and cinterbacter. Clindamycin and cephalotetin were also used in the past for intra-abdominal infections, but they have shown increasing resistance to the bacteroides fragilis group. So these have uh, been removed from the guideline and are no longer recommended for therapy for intra-abdominal infections. So a few weeks ago I gave this talk and there was mention of the SCIP um, guidelines. So what is the SCIP guidelines? Well, it's a surgical care improvement project. And basically what the goal of the SCIP guidelines is to reduce incidence of surgical complications. Um, so one of the focuses is surgical infection prevention. Other, others include DVT prophylaxis. Um, well, basically, the surgical infection prevention is that they want to start the prophylactic antibiotic within one hour of the surgical incision. And there's guidelines for appropriate antibiotic selection. And that these prophylactic, prophylactic antibiotics should be DC'd within 24 to 48 hours, depending on the type of the surgery. So what does SCIP have to do with the emergency department? Well, some pre-op antibiotics are ordered from the emergency department if the patient is going to be rushed off to the, the operating room. And SCIP guidelines do include antibiotics such as unison, clindamycin, cefotetin, etc. Um, so basically, it does include some of the antibiotics that the guidelines have said are not recommended for intra-abdominal infections. So like I said, I reiterated the guidelines said don't use these, right? Well, you got to remember that the SCIP guidelines are for prophylaxis use. So remember the antibiotics I was talking about and the infections I was talking about, these antibiotics are used for treatment. So that's where the difference, the difference comes in is that one is for prophylaxis and one is for treatment. So that is why some of those antibiotics that the guidelines recommended against using are still on the SCIP um, order forms. So some of the take-home points today uh, for intra-abdominal infections, most common pathogens are Enterobacteriaceae, E. coli is the big one, and anaerobes, typically the Bacteroides species. Uh, you also want to try to distinguish between hospital-acquired versus community-acquired. That'll help guide you in your antibiotic choice um, if you can distinguish between those two. Uh, third generation cephalosporins should be used and still remain or have good susceptibilities against the typical pathogens. Unisin, clindamycin, cefotetin are out per the new guidelines from the IDSA. And remember, zosin is not necessary for everybody. So it goes back up to bullet point two. 
distinguish between hospital acquired and community acquired and that way you can avoid using Zosin for everybody and hopefully we can control antibiotic resistance um, in our patient population. So any questions um, you can direct them towards me. My email address uh, will be included on future dates. Uh, hope you enjoyed today. Look forward to discussing pharmaceutical topics in the future, and we will see you next month. Thank you.